0: biblical understanding of who God is it's not just who we think God is but who did he say that he is he has given us an understanding of that and too often we get our preconceived notions go around town ask somebody in the street who is God and they'll say in the old testament he was a hater and in the new testament he was a lover right he wanted to smite everybody in the old testament suddenly he changed his mind everybody was all right you know That, of course, is not true, but that is the kind of the mindset that people have, and even in the church, of understanding who God is. When we talk about God, well, you know, I got sick. God's trying to teach me a lesson. (laughs) Really? Is He now? Maybe a lesson can be pulled from it, but did God put that on you specifically? What is it? And we just use these things. We put God in this box, and we mold God into this image that we want Him to be instead of Him molding us into the image that He wants us to be. So who is God? Secondly, who am I in relationship to Him? That's key. Who does He say that I am? Because when I am born again, I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What is the new? It's who God makes me to be. So it comes down to who does He say that I am? If the old is gone, then why do I keep bringing it up? Why do I live as if the old is still present? When He said it's gone and the new has come. But we do that all the time. We've got to have an understanding of who we are in Christ ultimately. And then the last one is how do I worship Him, which is what we talked about last week, living a life of worship, the going out and coming in. We come in together to worship, we go out to do what? To do battle. What does battle look like? Number one, it looks like witnessing, and that is one of the things. We're good at the coming in, we're bad at the going out. And Janet said it this morning, and there's a lot of truth to this, but we have taken this statement and made it as an excuse basically to not have to do anything. That preach the gospel in all times and when necessary use words. Guess what? Words are necessary. Now I'm sure the heart behind that is that our lives should look so much like Christ that they can't help but see Him. But we use that excuse like, well, I just let my light shine, but I don't say anything. It's not enough. Paul didn't do that. None of the other apostles didn't. We don't see anybody in the Bible that just let their light shine. They used words. We use it as an excuse. It's a part of what it is, worshiping God. What it is, is that we give every part to Him. This is yours, Lord. We lay it down before you. We consecrate ourselves before you. We're ripping the flesh from our body to sanctify, to become more like you, that we can be your representatives. And that's the key. We're His ambassadors. Now we're going to get into the part, the fourth part that we're really going to build upon from here is who is my enemy? We have to understand this. I mean, all four of these questions are crucial. It's the foundation of everything that we do. Honestly, when you think about it, when we give our lives to Christ, is understanding all of this but is important. But the understanding of who my enemy is, and equally important is who my enemy is not. Who or what are we fighting against and how do we do battle with them? And now so as we begin to dive into this. I want you to understand that as we go, we're very likely going to kick over a few sacred cows. Okay, We're going to do a little cow tipping. And all I ask is we're going to let Scripture be our guide. And if you hear something from the pulpit that goes contrary to something that you've been taught or believed your entire life, do what Acts 17.11 says. Let's examine the Scripture to see if those things are true. Because ultimately, we want to be on God's side of it. And the reason we're going to do this is, is, is because we have got to have an understanding of what God said about who is our enemy, how do we overcome him, and all of those different things. And there's many different parts of it, but there is so much bad teaching out there when it comes to spiritual warfare. And we, being good Americans, open up our mouths and let everybody put whatever they want in there, and we swallow it and it just accept it truth, as truth without giving it a second thought. The way you can tell that if that is true or not is look at our culture. Our media is more known for forming opinions instead of informing opinions. That's their goal, is to get you to think how they want. There was a time when that wasn't true, but what do we do in America? Oh, it was on the internet, it must be true, that State Farm commercial was brilliant. He's a furniture model, bonjour. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You guys watch TV? Am I alone here? Nod at me. Something. Give me, give me something here. But but I mean, but that's what we do. We we see a sound bite somewhere, like, oh, that's true. That, it must be true. You know, and we never go and check the sources to see what's going on. And it's the same when it comes to the gospel. When we when we hear the word, we just accept teachings. And we never examine them for ourselves. So let's dive into this. First of all, who is our enemy? Simply put, it's Satan, right? Pretty straightforward answer. But here's one thing that we need to know more than anything, is that understanding who our enemy is one thing, but not all of our problems come from our enemy. And we'll get into that more. But when we think of spiritual warfare, perhaps you think of it a little bit like this. I've got a picture here to show you. you got a little Jesus, a little Satan, they're doing an arm wrestling thing, you know, and whatnot. And this is what we think of when we think of spiritual warfare. A lot of us do. That Jesus and Lucifer are going at it. And a lot of people actually think this is what they look like. He's got a really nicely trimmed beard, runs around in a robe, and Satan's this red dude with horns that runs around his underpants. Right? Now that's not the description that the Bible gives us, but this is what we we think when we think of Satan. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at at Satan himself, Lucifer. Who is he? And we're going to start with is what is his name? We call him Lucifer, but I'll tell you that's not actually his name. Okay, so I'm going to go through some history with you here today. We're going to build a foundation on this, but we're going to look at this and say, what is his name? Over in Isaiah 14, verse 12, we get the word Lucifer. This is the first time and pretty much the only time that you see it. Isaiah 14, verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Now, very likely in your Bible, if you have your Bible and you opened up to there, you have a little asterisk next to it or some sort of mark or something, and if you drop down to the bottom of that, it will say literally day star. It may say literally morning star. The Hebrew word that's here is translated Lucifer is Hillel, which means to shine or to bear light. He's a light bearer. It's from the Latin Vulgate that we actually get the word Lucifer. It's not the Hebrew. The, comes In Latin, it comes from the word lux, which means light, and ferre, which means to bring. He's the light bringer. So Lucifer isn't his name. It's actually a description. And a lot of the more modern translation, the King James Version says Lucifer, but they'll say, oh, morning star, oh, day star, something like that, and things like that. Lucifer isn't his name, but that's what we call him, Right? We hear it all the time, Lucifer, you, you just just kind of, Satan and Lucifer, those are the big, biggies right there. But it's a description, that's all it is. It's a description of what, it, he's a light bearer, as you read in other parts of that, it talks about how he was covered in these stones and stuff. And the literal, if you begin to really study that out, I don't think that he was literally covered in stones, but these were co- colors of light. As you really begin to dig into that, which we're not going to do all of that today, but I would encourage you to do it because it's fascinating when you look at it. So what about the word Satan? Where does that come from? The word Satan is, again, it's a description. It's not a name. It means adversary. And we've turned all of these into proper names. That's what happened with Lucifer. When it was originally written, it was in a lowercase l, Lucifer, and they knew what that meant. But now we've, we've made it a proper name, and we've done that again with Satan. But the Bible has different names that they give him. We see in, in, in uh, Matthew 12 and 24. I want you to flip over there real quick. Matthew 12. In verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons, they're referring to Jesus, except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. It may say Beelzebul or Beelzebub, one of the two. Same guy. What are they referring to? Where does this come from? This kind of seems to come out of the blue a little bit. Uh, If you look back, and you don't have to turn here, just stay there in Matthew. 2 Kings chapter 1, this is where we see this given to us. Moab rebelled against Israel, this is verse 1, after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. "...whether I shall recover from this injury." But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, "...Arise, go up, meet with the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, "...Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron?" Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you come back? So they said to him, a man came up to meet with us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. This is where we get this word. He was a god in Ekron, and they worshipped him. Beelzebub is the Greek form of the name Beelzebub, which we see here in the Greek. Remember, this was in Hebrew. And he was a pagan Philistine god worshipped in the ancient Philistine city of Ekron during the Old Testament times. And it is a term that's signifying Lord of the Flies. Okay. So that's where we get this, Beelzebub. In other words, what are they referring? He's a false god. I said Satan is what we call him. Beelzebub. He's Satan. He's a false god. Now, did these guys literally see something? I think they did. I think that there was, it, it, at a minimum, whether they saw anything physical or they saw something spiritual, at a minimum, they saw something. This, these were not stupid people. The, and, and we try to paint them, especially historians, that these were just wacky people that made up all of these gods. I don't think so. There was a lot of intelligence going on back there. I truly believe that they saw something, whether it was a a physical form or just something spiritual that they saw. I believe that they saw something. But in Matthew 10, it gets interesting. Matthew 10, so this is just a couple pages back from where you were. Verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more would they call those of his household? Now notice this. This happens prior to verse 12 when they actually said he's doing the work by essentially Satan, is what they're saying, by this false god. Jesus knew one of two things. This was going around and Jesus was aware of it, or he had insight into what was about to happen. It's one of the two. My thought is, is in verse 12, wasn't the first time he heard that he was of his father, the devil, so to speak. You know He knew something was going on, and we see it come to play two chapters later. And there's no specific mention of Beelzebub any time prior to that. So again, it gives us an insight that one of the two things Jesus certainly could have known from a spiritual aspect of what was going on. But more than likely, there was a lot of things that was going on, and he was versed on it. He heard it, and the disciples probably heard it, and they're saying, If they're going to say it of me, they're going to say it of you. And we see that play out two chapters later. So we, again, we, we, we give names to these different things. But more often than not we got to understand when it refers to Satan or Lucifer or whatever you want to call him it is more of a description than it is a proper name. So what are some of the other descriptions that are in all through scripture? One is called is a tempter. In 1 Thessalonians, I don't expect you to turn to all of these, but if you want to write them down you can. The tempters. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is Paul speaking to the church of Thessalonica. He was concerned about the converse because he was afraid that the tempter, we know who the tempter is all through Scripture, tells us who brings temptation. He was concerned about these people were getting drawn away from the faith by the enemy. That's one. Another one, Matthew 13, in verse starting in verse 19, they call him the evil one. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And down to verse 38, the field is, is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. This again referring to Satan. This is a parable that Jesus is giving, but He's giving us an insight into what happens. And He's talking about when somebody hears the truth, the evil one comes and snatches that seed unless they would get born again, essentially is what it's saying. So He's called the tempter. He's called the evil one. How about this one? He's the accuser of the brethren. Re- Revelation 12 and verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and p- the power and the kingdom of, God, of our God and the authority of His Christ have come... T- for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses him day and night before our God. What does he do? He's the accuser of the brethren. Who are the brethren? Those who are followers of Christ. What is he accusing us of? Wrongdoing. You are not right with God. He accuses us of all this different stuff. He's trying to get us off. If we are a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, then we should never look to our past as a guide point to see how we're doing. Because we're new. We're made right, right then and there with God. We don't look to our past like, I used to be a drunk and I don't drink anymore, so I must be doing something okay. No, we were made right with God. The accuser, of the brethren, has nothing to do with this. He comes in and tries to bring up our past. He tries to say, yeah, but you did this. You're not worthy to do work for God because you did this. It's not what God says. There are three titles in here that point to the authority that He has in this world. John 12 and 31 tells us that He's the ruler of the world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? We already know this. This is Satan. You know The reason we know this, the reason that he has some power is that you see it in the temptations of Christ. They're not temptation unless there's legitimacy behind them. If I came up to you and said, I have a bridge that I'm willing to sell you for $100. It's in San Francisco. It's got a nice golden color. I think you'll like it. Nobody in here is dumb enough to be tempted by that. Why? Because I have no right to sell what is not mine. When he offers all the kingdoms of the world, if, he will, if Jesus will fall down and worship, it's not a temptation unless they belong to him. Okay, Another one, he's the God of this age. Second Corinthians 4.4 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I put God of this age, but God of this world is the same thing. He's the God of of the world that you and I currently reside in okay doesn't mean has authority over us he's the prince of the power of the air Ephesians 2 2 in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience that is not us Another thing that he does, he transforms himself into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11 and 14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There are tons of these all throughout scriptures, and if I tried to do them all, we'd be here all month. Okay? I am simply trying to whet your appetite a little bit, show you a few things, but it is our job to go home, and let's understand this, that these are not proper names, but these are descriptions of who he is and what he's done. But here's the bottom line, we can call him whatever we want, it doesn't matter, I don't care what the world calls him, call him Lucifer, call him the devil, call him Satan, call him the prince of the power, call him whatever, I only care about one thing, what does Christ call him? He calls him defeated. Colossians chapter 2, and this is where it gets fun. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Pause there one second. Let me paint you a picture of what's going on. He is dealing with the church of Colossae. Am I saying that right? The Colossians, however you want to say it. Because the Gnostics had come in and began to question everything about the gospel that was preached and that you had to do these certain things in order to be right with God because they don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin or He raised from the dead. He was just a good man. And so he's getting in there and they're saying, well, but you're not circumcised or you're not doing this or you're not doing that. Verse 12, Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God and raised him, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That's exciting in and of itself, but watch this part, verse 14, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, have Having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's exciting. But I want to look at verse 14 for a minute. Because this entire passage is talking more or less dealing with legalism. The things that we have to do in order to be right with God. And that is not the way God did it. I showed you guys back in December the do and the done. Done. Is Jesus. Do is religion, that we have to do things in order to be right with God. All we got to do is rest in what Christ has already done, and we're made right. But when we look at this, that He's having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, there's a bad teaching out there that some have said that this is referring to the Mosaic law or the Old Testament law. And that is not the case. You say that they've nailed the law to the cross. That's not, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, He fulfilled it. We rest in Christ's Sabbath. We're in His Sabbath rest from our works of trying to do works of righteousness. Because we couldn't do them anyway. The handwriting of requirements, it was a legal term. Okay? When someone had committed a crime they would be certainly be judged and they would be sentenced and at this time they would be handed this handwriting requirement stating the punishment for whatever crime was going on this would be uh, basically their sentence and it would say you have 10 years in prison or whatever it is And they would have this, and it was up to the jailer of those times to enforce those requirements. And if a prisoner would escape, the jailer would be forced to take their place because justice must be served. And that's why you see when Paul and Silas are singing worship and worshiping God and the earth shakes and all the doors open and all of that, the jailer realizes what's happening. He's about to fall on his sword, and Paul cries out, We're all here. Don't kill yourself. Do Do yourself no harm. Why was he about to fall on his sword? Because everybody who escaped, he was responsible for serving their punishment. It was his job to make sure that their punishment was fulfilled. So when they would fulfill their sentence, his, this document that they would have would be signed showing that they had fulfilled the handwriting of requirements that was against them, and the person would keep this with them always so that they could no longer be punished again for this, their debt to society, showing that it had been paid. Are you picking up a parallel here at all? I hope so, because this is the exciting part. All of mankind had a judgment against them because we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. And because if God is righteous, he must judge sin. And the enemy knows, knows it, that he must. Jesus took the handwriting of requirements that were against us upon himself and nailed them to the cross. Now, when the accuser of the brethren tries to bring those back up, the judge looks at him and says, they're done. And he does away with the accuser of the brethren. This is the work that Christ had done. This is the exciting part, that all of those things that were against us are no longer against us because Christ took them. So when the enemy tries to bring up our past, we show him it's been paid in full. That's the fun part. Having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. How did He do that? He rose from the dead. He made a spectacle of them when He rose again, showing that death no longer had authority over us. The accuser of the brethren no longer has a right to us. We have been redeemed and reconciled back to God. Look at this. Why death entered into this world in the first place was because of sin, right? All who sin are subject to death. No question. It's all through Scripture. Satan is the god of this world, and what does he do? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus never sinned. He had a legal right to be on this earth. He came through the seed of a woman. You see it in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. You see the seed war going on. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. Satan tried to kill him even though he had no right to it. You see all through the Bible trying to eliminate the possibility for the Messiah to come dealing with the sea. When, when, when Jesus was born, what did they do? They killed all the newborn babies, but they had escaped, right? And you also see it when he trying to get rid of Pilate said, I find no fault in him. In other words, there's no right to kill him, but he gave it over to them anyway and said, you do what you want. Jesus willingly laid his life down, and at that moment, Satan believed he'd won. The problem, one, is he had no right to that. Jesus took the place of the entire world right then. All mankind has access to the Father. He shamed Satan when he was resurrected because death had no right to him in the first place, and God raised him from the dead. And I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. We have an enemy that has done for, from the beginning of time, has tried to fold the plan of God. And every time he's tried... He's failed. And if we were living as the Bible was being written, because the problem is, is we know the beginning from the end. We have it all in front of us. We see the history of it. We see what happens. When we're reading some passage we've read 20 times, we know what happens at the end. We know the outcome. But at the time that this was being acted out, if you know what I mean, they didn't have a clue. They were much like us. They didn't know what was going on. And there were many times they probably thought, oh, man, the devil won. He won. He won again. He did it. Not knowing that God had a bigger plan going on in the background. And whatever the enemy will use for evil, God will, will and can use it for good. And he does use it for good. It's to bring glory to his name. This is why Paul says that in all of these things in Philippians 4, God's grace is enough for me. It's sufficient for all that I need and I can overcome all of this stuff. This is what he's talking about. I don't care what they bring against me. My life will bring glory to God. We can call Satan whatever we want to call him. Ultimately, Christ called him defeated. Therefore, he is a defeated foe that no longer has a right or authority over our lives, that Christ has given us authority over him. What we need to understand about spiritual warfare is the warfare is not between Satan and God. God could flick his finger and he'd be gone. It's a battle that we wage war in through spiritual practices. It's a, it's a, it's a battle that we go on, but our biggest enemy, our biggest downfall has very little to do with Satan, has to do with us. It's our flesh. It's our mind. We're to crucify our flesh and we're to renew our mind. And we're not going to talk a lot about that today. We will hear in the next couple of weeks. This is going to go on, but I want you to understand it's as we walk through this. And I told you guys when we started this series that a series like this or some, I hesitate at times because the enemy, when you begin to get knowledge of how defeated and small he is, he will do anything to raise up against you. And we look fleshly, we look at the circumstances. We don't look at the one who overcame them. We look at what's going on, and it brings us down and all of that. But if we look at it and say, oh, this is it? What does it talk about that someday all of us are going to look at him and like, this is the one that brought all the death, and this is, this is it? This is what you're talking about? He's tiny in comparison. He's not our problem. Our problem is we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. We don't allow him to sanctify us. We don't allow Him to lead us into all truth. Amen? Man, God is good. I love, 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 love. I love more than anything in the world teaching the Bible. I love it. I love it. And I'll tell you why. It's because every time I pull something out, I don't care if I've read it a thousand times, God shows me something new. Every single time. And it's just like, you know, we all in the back of our minds, we know He's defeated. He's got no power. But boy, we don't act like it. You know, we don't. We walk around defeated all the time. We allow the circumstances to dictate our mood. We allow this, that, and the other thing to dictate how we're going to be. We don't rise up to what God has called us to be. God is above all things, and in Him we can do all things. But the key is in Him. So we're going to take just a minute and we're going to worship God. We're going to have one last worship song. And I'm willing to pray for anybody that needs prayer for anything. So during this time, I'd ask you to come up forward. But, but don't come up for my sake. You don't need me to lay hands on you. I'm happy to do it. God can minister you through it. But let's just reach out to God. Let's just say, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me? And seek what He's showing you through this message, how we can apply it to our life. And anything you need, let's go straight to Him. You don't need a middleman. So let's stand up.